Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing, disparities in health care, and immigration. Today we're going to talk about the opioid epidemic that's sweeping the country for several years, and, and, and in particular its impact in neighborhoods close to City College. And the idea for this show started about a year ago. We have a close and evolving relationship with the Harlem Chamber of Commerce, and the president of the chamber, Mr. Lloyd Williams, came to me and said that the health committee of the chamber has a, a specific focus on alleviating opioid addiction and overdose in, in the community and asked if we at City College could play a role in working with community stakeholders on this issue. Um, so we want to discuss how this public health crisis has been affecting northern Manhattan, the communities around City College. We want to talk about the work that we're doing here on campus and how it interacts with some of the work that's going on in the community. So we'll be asking, are there factors that make the crisis in our near communities different? And does that mean that we need a different approach in the search for solutions to this crisis? Um, a little bit of background, opiums, opioids are prescription drugs that include Oxycontin, Vicodin, Percocet, and morphine. It also includes street drugs like heroin, opium, and fentanyl. Both prescription and illegal opioids ease pain and anxiety and make users feel a sense of euphoria and sleep, sleepiness. According to the Center for Disease Control, or the CDC, the average, on average, 130 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. So this is a serious problem. Here in New York City, according to the Department of Health, overdo overdose deaths have increased every year for the past six years. So in 2015, there were 937 deaths from this. In 2016, there were 1,374 deaths. Overdose rates rose among all demographic groups and among residents in nearly every New York City neighborhood, with the South Bronx having the highest level of overdose. Um, they're also high. The overdose rates are also very high in East Harlem. Researchers attribute the dramatic rise to the increased presence of fentanyl, which is 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. So this is a, an important part of the puzzle that we'll try to unpack today. So to tackle the epidemic here in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio and First Lady Sherlane McRae announced Healing NYC, which is a $38 million annual program to reduce opioid overdose deaths by 35% over five years. Here at City College, we're committed to using our expertise to help alleviate the problem as well. Our mini medical school, which is run under the auspices of the CUNY School of Medicine at City College, is hosting sessions with the Harlem community to promote opioid overdose prevention. On December 12th of this last year, they held a community forum entitled Mini Medical School Working Together for a Healthier Harlem, Opioids Everywhere, a Practical Guide to Understanding and Combating the Current Crisis. One of our guests today was a speaker at the Opioids Everywhere Forum. Um, he's Dr. Howard Greller, the Director of Research and Toxicology at the Emergency Department at St. Barnabas Hospital Health Systems. And he's also an affiliated medical professor in the Department of Clinical Medicine here at the City University of New York School for Medicine. Dr. Greller, welcome to From City to the World. Apart from the Midi Medical School, we've been working with members of the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce, as I described earlier, because opioid overdose prevention is one of their health committee's signature initiatives. At CCNY, faculty from our medical school and from our psychology department are teaming up with members of the Harlem community 
to attack the problem. And we have representatives from that initiative in the studio as well. Dr. Nancy Stoller is here. She's an associate medical professor here at City College. And she is also affiliated with the, Ch the CHASM School, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. CHASM stands for Community Health and Social Medicine. Dr. Stoller, welcome to From City to the World. And I should say on the second half of our show, Dr. John Palmer from the Harlem Chamber of Commerce will be joining us. He's the Director of Community Affairs and Diversity at Truro College of Osteopathic Medicine, and he spearheads the, the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce's work in this area. So, Dr. Stoller, let me start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the CHASM program and what its emphases are? Sure. So, CHASM, Community Health and Social Medicine, is a department of the medical school. Um, it's been there since the beginning of the school, and it's, a very, it's our mission-driven department of the school. Um, so not only do we teach population health and community health and research methods um, and um, ideas about how you think about research in that department, we kind of go further than other medical schools go by emphasizing um, thinking about and talking about the social determinants of health. Um, we have several courses, um, and they're all very unique courses in our program. Um, so we're thinking about the social determinants of health within our community in New York City um, and elsewhere. So we're talking with our students about how you think about social determinants, how you measure social determinants, and how you become agents of change um, as physicians. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, let's start by, by um, outlining the, the dimensions of the problem. So, Dr. Grella, let's start with you. What are, sure. we, what are we talking about in, is, in, in, in the dimensions of the opioid addiction problem? Uh, it's, it's massive. Mm -hmm. It's massive. It, right now, uh, drug overdose is the leading cause of preventable death in the United States. So it's more than motor vehicle accidents, it's more than firearm injuries, it is killing, last year, over 70,000 people. It's astounding. It's astounding. And in New York City, the rate of death is about, one person dies of an overdose every seven hours. So it's, we are losing just countless numbers of lives to a tremendous problem that hopefully can be curtailed. And, and what about the geographic distribution in, in New York? We, we're, we're, um, we talk most o often about the neighborhoods within reach of City College, mm -hmm. East Harlem, West Harlem, Northern Manhattan. Is, is there a specific dynamic there? I mean, it affects every area. Um, the areas that are most impacted are, like you said, the South Bronx, um, where I work, and Staten Island. Mm -hmm. uh, Staten Island has the highest rate of overdose deaths, and the Bronx has the highest number of overdose deaths. Rate meaning per capita. Per capita, right. right. Um, and so it's, but it is, it affects every every New Yorker. Um, yeah. Dr. So. Stoller, did I hear you say some time ago that the greatest increase in, in opioid deaths was, was taking place in the Harlem community? Is it? Um, it, there, I think there are about 14 communities that, that are um, affected more than others in the New York area, and East and Central Harlem are among them. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, in the early stages of the epidemic, it looked like Harlem and, and some of the neighborhoods like Harlem, Inwood, Washington Heights, were, were going to be missed by this epidemic, and it, and it seemed in its early stages to be more of a suburban phenomenon. But in the last few years, it's come back quite strongly in these neighborhoods. And I, I wonder if we have any hypotheses about, about why this particular pattern of spread has taken place. There are, I mean, there are a couple of ideas about it. And people have described or broken down the, the epidemic into sort of three phases. So there was a, a phase in the 90s to early 2000s where it was 
driven by the rise in prescription opioids. Mm -hmm. And so you would get a prescription for medications like Percocet, oxycodone, things like that. Uh, and that was a, a big push uh, in order to treat pain. Uh, and then it became sort of um, a, a bigger problem as people developed dependence and sought the medications, and then it became widespread. Uh, once people recognized that that was a problem, the second phase was sort of a re, uh, sort of the classics never go out of style, heroin became big again. And uh, that started to take over the prescription as prescriptions were limited, as indications for treating pain with opioids were changed, uh, heroin became sort of the big uh, component. And now the third phase, which we've started to see over the last few years, is the heroin supply has now been contaminated with these very potent analogs, fentanyl and, and the other agents similar to fentanyl. And that's driving this very large spike in, in deaths. Um, and so communities that are affected are communities that are using the agents that are, are causing the deaths. And mm -hmm. if, if I could just add to yeah. that, it's not only um, heroin right. that's been um, contaminated with fentanyl, it's, it's cocaine, it's ben benzodiazepines, Everything. it's meth. So people who are not used to using heroin at all are suddenly at risk for heroin overdose inadvertently. So uh, I, I want to jump to something that, that again, I, I believe I, I heard uh, coming out of the City College research on this topic, that many, many of the overdose deaths are in demographics that are a little surprising, people who are in their 60s and above as opposed to you know, high school kids or college kids or, or, or young people. And I gather that has something to do with the introduction of fentanyl into the drug supply. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I would say that. I have like the data right in front of me from the um, 2017 um, Department of Health. And the largest rate is actually um, in the age group of 55 to 64. Oh. And I think we can think about people who, you know, have used heroin maybe for a long time. And they're sort of figured out how to live their lives using heroin and they've gone on with this. Now all of a sudden they're at risk of overdose because the, the, the um, what, what's in the heroin that they're using is something unexpected. And so I think this might be happening. Yeah. There's, a, there's an analogy to that for people who become incarcerated and who were using heroin drugs like that prior to being incarcerated, that when they get out, they if they resume the habits that um, they were using before, they now are taking in a drug that is either much more potent than what they're used to, or they've lost their dependence on it, and so their response to it is different from what they, you know, they, you can't go back to using the same amount that you were using after you've been abstinent for a long period of time. And in a similar fashion, if you are using heroin and what you were using was actually heroin, and then suddenly you start to use something that is 50 to 100 times more potent, um, if you use the same amount, you're going to have a, a, a worse outcome. Now, is, is there any way, it's, it's, a, it's a funny way of talking about it, but is there any way that a, 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 a long-term consumer of drugs who, as you say, Dr. Stoller, has figured out how to live their life on heroin or on even on marijuana or something else, is there any way that they can be... Um, more informed consumers. Yes. Uh, can we talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We're just, um, I 
I do a lot of my work now with my colleagues at Montefiore Hospital, Chinazo Cunningham, Julia Arnston, and we've been working for years looking at um, um, how to bring care to people who are HIV infected. And we know that there's an intersection with these two epidemics, the opioid epidemic and HIV. And we're just um, finishing up some studies looking at um, just that. And we see that people can can manage their HIV and can manage their other chronic diseases while still maintaining substance abuse. They don't have to be necessarily abstinent to be able to um, have good health and, and go on with their lives. So while that may be a goal and that may be something that we want to help them get treatment with for if they want, it is possible for people to not be completely abstinent. Is, is, the, is the health community set up to begin thinking about um, people who use drugs as consumers who need safety as opposed to thinking about them as criminals or a war on drugs? Are, 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 we, are we in a position to begin to direct ourselves towards that kind of a conversation? I, I think we have to. Yeah. I, I think certainly, you know, different communities of physicians and, and allied health professionals are thinking in that way. I think we need to shift the conversation to look at not only the language that we use to describe people who use drugs, but also the way that we talk about managing and treating those problems. So, you know, one of the terms that people use is medication-assisted treatment, or MAT, and using medications like buprenorphine or methadone to help people with opioid use disorders. Um, and my personal view of this is I don't think that we should call this medication-assisted treatment. It's these are, these are therapeutics that we use for a disease. Um, we don't say that insulin is medication-assisted therapy for diabetics. We, you know, and we should, we should be approaching this as this is a human disease that we have therapies and treatments for, and we should, um, we should talk about it in that way rather than stigmatize people. Got it. I want to talk a little bit about the role that physicians have played in, in this, and, and, and I guess by extension also the pharmaceutical industry. I, I was struck a couple weeks ago. I had to go to a dentist have a tooth extraction and on the way out, he said, would you like some OxyContin? And it, 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 particularly with this show in mind, I thought, I mean, first of all, I didn't think I needed it. But I thought it was a strange question to ask what medicine I wanted. And I wonder if, if you can talk about, first of all, the role of physicians in, in getting this started. Dr. Grella, you said in the early stages this really was very much a prescription drug-triggered um, epidemic. Right. But, you know, is there a kind of reexamination of the role of, of, of dispensing pain medication in, in the medical community? Absolutely. And there, are, there are a number of initiatives, both locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally, to look at our use of these very potent tools, um, and as well as a reflective um, approach towards our involvement in, in starting that first wave. Um, a lot of that had to do with the way that these tools were marketed mm -hmm. and how they were positioned to treat a, a problem that was recognized as being uh, an undertreatment of pain by physicians. Um, I, I can recall in my training being taught that if someone has pain, giving them an opioid medication, there's no risk of addiction 
to it because if you're using it for its intended in indication, there's no problem. And the that was based on literally a paragraph that was is one of the most cited pieces of literature in in the medical literature from the New England Journal of Medicine, talking about a an observation, and that was used as marketing and used to promote oxy oxycodone. Um, and it, it's just, it's something that sort of spiraled out of control. I think now people are very aware of our role and our use of these tools appropriately and doing things like limiting prescriptions, deprescribing medications, uh, finding alternatives to appropriate pain management that don't necessarily involve um, these, these agents. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in an age of, of healthcare where, you know, I don't think it would have occurred to my parents to ask for a specific kind of medication. And, and I know that one of the things that happens, particularly around pain, is patients go to doctors knowing that these drugs are available and asking specifically for them. And, and I wonder how much the medical community is, um, is captured by that dynamic and how, how possible it is to push back against it. There are a lot of, of trends that guide and push people. So one of the things that I particularly reject is the direct-to-consumer advertising. I think that, that that doesn't educate people. That tells people a, a name to ask for without truly understanding what the, again, I look at medications as tools. So you don't understand why the tool needs to be used, then asking for it doesn't, doesn't make sense. There needs to be, there's an education gap that needs to be filled prior to. So if it's the appropriate drug for you, it's the appropriate drug. But just because I saw it on TV doesn't mean that it is the right thing for me. Mm -hmm. um, and physicians are just as uh, susceptible to advertising as the population is. So I think that there are, there are multiple factors that that weigh in and play a role in this, but uh, there needs to be there needs to be more education broadly about what what medicine is and what medicines are for. Mm -hmm. Dr. Stoller, can you talk a little bit about the way our students are being prepared in the CUNY School of Medicine around this issue? I imagine that part of the curriculum is um, both a practical and probably an ethical conversation about the, the doctor's responsibility to patients. Yeah, I mean, th this comes up in our CHASM courses. I'm not sure how much it comes up in the, um, in the clerkships and how much it comes up in the um, organ-based system studies, but we're starting to, we were actually talking about this more today, we're starting to talk about ways that the issue of substance abuse can be brought up in, in sort of a more um, routine and practical way in the same way we talk about, you know, alcohol use, pain. How do you ask people about these difficult questions without making a big deal about it? So, yeah. I see. So I want to talk just a little bit about um, intervention strategies and what we can do. And, and, and so one um, drug that's gotten a lot of attention lately, and I think it's positive attention, is uh, naloxone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this is an overdose prevention drug that's received uh, a, a lot of play. I read somewhere that, that uh, um, someone was saying that everyone should be carrying naloxone in their pocket because of the, the, the near occasion of, of, of witnessing someone w with an overdose. But what do we need to know about this? And, and um, 
you know, is there a role for City College or St. Barnabas in the distribution of this? There definitely is, and I think um, Howard has something to say about this, but we also, we had an Oxone training here a little bit ago. Um, we brought in students, and it was actually um, Herbert Quinones from Department of Health came and did the training. Students from all different um, of parts of the college came. Um, we're now thinking about doing it so that we have a community-based distribution, and we want to do this on a regular basis. We think it's really important for people to be able to um, understand that they may be observing an overdose and not realizing it, understanding that they can do something about it, and also just making this a topic that people talk about so it's not so stigmatized. But I know they've been doing a lot at St. Barnabas as well. Yeah, we, I, we are an opioid overdose prevention program, part of the, the city and statewide um, system designed to distribute naloxone. Naloxone is, a again, a tool that is used to reverse the effects of an opioid. So if someone has an overdose of an opioid, they stop breathing, which is the primary means by which it harms you. And there is a time between which you stop breathing and when you die. And in that time frame, you have the opportunity to intervene with the naloxone. Naloxone reverses the effects of the drug, whatever drug it is, on the brain and can restore breathing. And so the naloxone is not the solution to the opioid crisis. Naloxone is a tool to help people not die. And every day that someone doesn't die is another day that they have a chance to get into recovery. So the, the, it's a preventative uh, thing. It is a stopgap measure. There needs to be much more done prior to someone overdosing uh, in order to get that problem less. But right now, because so many people are dying, um, I, I fully support the sentiment that everyone should be carrying naloxone, and we're trying to distribute it as widely as possible. Uh, the city and the state are behind these initiatives to, to just try and stem the tide of, of the death that, that is occurring. Could, could we talk a little bit about what, what that means sort of specifically? In other, what does it mean to administer naloxone? What kind of training does somebody need? Could, you know, could I walk in and, and you know, w would it take me an hour or, or a day to be certified? Is yep. it? So there, the city, if you go to nyc.gov slash naloxone, N-A-L-A-X-O-N-E, terrible speller, I apologize, <laughs> um, uh, they, uh, they list a, a number of different resources that are available, including uh, publicly available training courses. The courses take about two hours. You become certified as a, a carrier and user of naloxone. Uh, one of the programs that we're using at, at St. Barnabas. In New York. In New York City. Yeah. In New York City, yes. Um, we're, we're doing this to dispense to patients and um, the other programs to train family members and uh, just bystanders. So it's it's like taking a CPR course. It's something that hopefully you'll never have to use, but it's great to have the knowledge and the ability to intervene if you have to. Uh, the naloxone is really much easier to use than people think because it's most of the kits that are dispensed are something called a single step, mm -hmm. which is basically you take it out of the package, you put it in the person's nose, and you push the plunger. Oh. That's it. Okay. And that's it. And it distributes the entire dose. You have to make sure that it's inside their nose so it goes where you want it to be. But that's really the entire thing. So the, the training essentially is learning to recognize that someone's overdosed, mm -hmm. uh, taking the steps that are necessary to help with that. So essentially calling 911 mm -hmm. and then administering the drug and then helping to recover the person after you reverse 
the the effects of the opioid. Okay. So. Let, let me ask a question. Sure. Let's let's say somebody makes a mistake yep. and and they think someone's having an overdose and they don't. Are there any harmful effects? Of, no. Uh, not, not at no. all. Nasal irritation, I guess, would be small count. small price to small pay. price to pay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And and Dr. Stoll, I want to go back and pick up on something you said. City College has started to get involved in this area. Can you tell us what an expansion of it might look like? And particularly if people are listening, how can they learn how to take advantage of the resources we have on this campus. Okay, good. So so that's great. So we had um, one training with the Department of Health who came in um, to work with us, um, and they were very welcoming, and they will come back. So um, our colleagues in the psychology department and I are going to start to set up a regular um, this training on a regular basis so that everybody in our college community has an opportunity to attend. I think it's very important for us also to bring in people from the local community so that it's not just students and faculty and staff, which is a big thing if we can get everybody on on campus to really understand this problem, but also to bring um, people from the community. So we're going to get Dr. Doran, who's the chair of the Community Health and Social Medicine Department, to involve the the people from the Mini Medical School. And when she does this, we're going to talk about this more and try to figure out how to get the Mini Medical School to have a session um, on naloxone training too. Could I just, could I just, you know, we've, 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 I've said that the phrase mini medical school a couple of times. Could you tell our listeners what this is and how they can get involved in it? Yeah, this is a really great program that was started in our department when Dr. Dorn came. Um, She brings in people like um, Dr. Greller to come in and talk about a specific topic. Um, This is something that was requested of us by the community. And so, you know, being part of the Harlem community, we want to be able to give back. And so training about specific sort of diseases, outcomes, and problems in the community are things that um, each mini medical school um, sort of a session would talk about. And so we talked, one of them was about the opioid crisis. And so a lot of people from, it was actually really well attended. People from the local community came. Both people from the businesses around us and people who live in Harlem would come and learn something about it. And then they would meet people who are experts and people from the college as well. So, um, yeah, they should get in touch with the community health and social medicine. We would love to engage people. We would love some ideas for topics. Great. And it's for anybody and it's free of charge. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm saying again, ladies and gentlemen in the Harlem community, <laughs> this is for you. We, we want you to be able to come to campus and take advantage of the resources we have on campus. Is there an easy way for people to contact um, the CHASM program? Is it is it a website at the City College webpage? Yeah, there is, it's on the City College webs, um, webpage and also the emails of all of us in the department are there and we would love to hear from you. Okay, so you can get to the medical school through the City College webpage. That is ccny.cuny. Edu. And you may have to hunt around a little bit for the medical school, but it's not terribly hard to find. We're going to take a short break now. You're listening to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreaux, the president of City College, and you're listening to us on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. We will be back in just a few minutes and be joined at that point by Dr. John Palmer, and we're looking forward to his contributions to the conversation. Stay with us. And we are now pleased to join... Uh, conversation we've been having with Dr. Howard Greller and Dr. Nancy Stoller, and pleased to welcome Dr. John Palmer to the program. Dr. Palmer is the Director of Community Affairs and Diversity at Turo College of Osteopathic Medicine. He's held several executive-level positions at hospitals and healthcare organizations throughout New York City. He's a retired Executive Director of Harlem Hospital Center and the Renaissance Healthcare Network. 
He was the assistant commissioner of the New York City Department of Mental Health. He was also the regional director of the New York City Regional Office of the New York State Office of Mental Health. Um, and we uh, met each other, as I said earlier in the program, because he is spearheading the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce's health initiatives, and one of the main elements of that has been a project to try to stem the opioid uh, crisis in the Harlem community, but also in New York City. Dr. Palmer, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you, and, and not that it really matters, but I was deputy regional director of... Uh, Do we just promote you here yes, on the show? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, we're going to see if we can make that stick for oh, you. How about that? <laughs> um, as I said, we, we first uh, met uh, as part of uh, my getting to know the Harlem Chamber of Commerce, um, but before we got involved with the partnership between the Chamber and City College, you were already advocating that the Chamber play a role in this crisis. In fact, I think it was due to your advocacy that Mr. Williams came to me and said, I'd like for City College to be involved in this. Could you describe your thinking as you as you moved the Chamber into a more active position in, the, in relationship to this crisis? The, the Chamber's had a health committee since 2007. Mm -hmm. I've been the chair of that committee for the last five or six years. Uh, the focus early on was the gun violence epidemic in Harlem um, and what should we do about that, and we still focus on those issues. The, the next step was looking at healthy eating and healthy living and looking at all the chronic medical conditions that plague this and communities like this across the country. So we took on gun violence, we, we took on uh, chronic medical conditions, uh, and uh, this, as this came on board, it, it just flowed right onto the screen because the, uh, as Lloyd says, the business of uh, people, the business of people is, is people. And so if they can't take care of the people in Harlem, the business uh, owners and, and the purveyors of business, they won't have any customers. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that they establish themselves in this uh, uh, fight. And it was very important that we had at least some foresight in knowing there was a problem. And our chief role has been making people aware uh, is it a problem for us? Yes, it is. Is it a problem, Harlem? Yes, it is. And these are the issues, and we try to lay them out on every single health problem as it comes our way. Yeah. Are there distinctive dynamics to the epidemic in Harlem as compared to, you know, northern New York State or Ohio or Staten Island or, so, or Long Island? Well, I think there, there, there are ripples that, that are becoming very distinctive. Uh, the older population of quote-unquote addicts, uh, I think, in Harlem are starting to suffer. Mm -hmm. uh, people who've been using heroin for most of their lives, uh, having fentanyl now introduced into that supply, are starting to suffer from that. And you're seeing more overdose and overdose deaths in senior citizens. Um, that you probably won't see other places, but you will see that in Harlem. Um, the explosion in the Latino population that is well known in the Bronx is starting to hit East Harlem. Uh, and people need to be aware of that and, and what it looks like and, and what can be done about it. Uh, so there are features uh, that can be seen. Uh, the black population so far, according to the city numbers, still hasn't had the impact at, as other populations have had. Uh, that, unfortunately, probably won't be sustained. Uh, I look back at the psychology of epidemics and we look at HIV. And when HIV started, uh, the black community was saying, what is that? Uh, it, that's what white people get, or who, 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 who's HIV positive, what is that? And we soon found out that uh, anybody can become HIV positive and anybody can get AIDS. 
And our information in the black community on that wasn't current. Uh, we had to depend on the gay community and less so on government sources of information to understand how we become current in that epidemic. And this is very similar to that. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the guests I've had on this show uh, is our great uh, health journalist, uh, um, Linda Villarosa, mm -hmm. who writes about the interface between health crises and ethnicity in America. And she talks about the racialized aspect of maternal uh, mortality. Mm -hmm. and, and, and also she's written on the racialized aspect of HIV. And, and this is another health crisis that has an absolutely distinctive racialized aspect. And I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about that. Well, the, the numbers themselves are clear in terms of the white population in this country being hit by this first. Um, the, the thing that's, that is always stunning is that somehow we, we sit in Harlem and we say, well, that's not really going to happen to us. Mm -hmm. Because we don't get the information. We don't have the understanding of how this spreads. If somebody had said, well, you know, your fentanyl is being mixed with your heroin at that level, so it's going to get to you sooner or later, the old heads would have put that together very quickly and said, well, fentanyl is going to be mixed with not only heroin but cocaine and other drugs that are used illicitly in this community, so we better watch out. Mm -hmm. Th those kinds of things don't happen as quickly as they should. So we're slower on the uptake, and we believe less. And once it hits, now we have a conspiracy theory. Well, who's doing this to us? Uh, and that stops us from thinking about it in a rational way and in a way to approach it, like questioning some of the things that are already being done uh, to help us fight this. Uh, let's be reasonable and rational. Let's understand where the issue is coming from. Now let's address it in a way that helps the black community deal with it because we have the same problem. Yeah. Do, do you have examples of some of the, the kind of suspicions that, are, that arise in the face of some you know, well-meaning and maybe even well-focused efforts to, spe to stem this epidemic? Well, it, the, one of the suspicions is, is always where is this coming from? Right. The, we've always had heroin in the community. How is it possible that all of a sudden heroin is bad? Is somebody just doing this to us? Who are these people who are dying out there in other communities? Are they really dying? Is that, is that something that we're just hearing? Is that rumor, suspicion? So it's unfortunate that while there's information out there, it's not presented in a comprehensive way. Mm -hmm. It's not presented with an eye to help people understand not only what's happening, but how it can happen to you and what your role can be in keeping it from happening. Uh, the, the criminal aspect of this is, is still hanging over us uh, as if this is only something that is happening to criminals and our kids are not really going to be involved. And yeah, drugs are being sold in schools in the community. Drugs are being sold to children. We have increased overdoses among black kids now. Nobody's talking about that. So, again, the information itself doesn't get out in a comprehensive way. It doesn't inform the community. And we spend a lot of our wheels and a lot of our capital pushing back against the information because we're suspicious. And it, it, and it, and it plays for people to be suspicious because that's what people want to talk about. Yeah. They want to talk about suspicions rather than realities. Uh, but right now we're in trouble in, in the uh, senior citizens. We're in trouble with our children. Um, and that doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a question I asked in the first half of the show um, because it's provoked by some of the things you just said. Are we, 
are we set up to think about this crisis as a health crisis rather than a crime wave? Is that something that we're prepared to do? The, uh, I, I think there's been some work done uh, in years past, and I, you know, I said maybe 10 or 15 years ago, to take a look at the criminalization of drug usage uh, and uh, addiction and how that needs to be addressed. Now, it's well known how crack addicts uh, and people who sell drugs were confused uh, and they were criminalized and put, put in jail for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And most of those people happened to be, happened to have been black. Um, the uh, thing that we have to be careful of though, going forward, is to understand clearly that this attitude has not thoroughly changed. I'd like to see how many of the people who are being arrested are now being exposed to drug treatment. Uh, what is the alternative given at sentencing mm -hmm. by the Manhattan DA or by a judicial, uh, a judicial system as to what people can actually do versus due time? Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to see the numbers. So we should be able to look at those and understand very clearly now what, what's happening. I'd like to talk a little bit now about what our institutions are doing together to, to, to work together. So um, I'd like to talk to everybody about this, but I, we'll stick with you for a second, Dr. Palmer. When, when you talk about um, alleviating a kind of community crisis, one of the places you start is with community assets. What assets are available in the community? How do we mobilize them? And I know you, as, as part of the Chamber's effort, have a pretty good sense of who's out there, who's involved, and, and what role they can play. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, I think right now we're seeing the city taking the lead in, in, in terms of how they want to use the assets that are already in place. Um, they're putting a focus on reducing the number of deaths by a certain percentage. They're putting a focus on putting assets in uh, more inpatient services. They're putting the focus on putting assets in the use of uh, medications uh, to, to address these issues. Um, it, it's not clear to me how that is going to work out going forward. Um, I, I know the plans have been afoot almost two years now, mm -hmm. and it's, it's unclear to me how they've been played other than the naloxone uh, approach. Uh, you see the trucks out. Uh, they're, they're in the street. Uh, you see people and hear people talking about uh, using this to uh, derail the epidemic uh, where they can. Um, and we understand that that's a hit or miss proposition. Uh, it does show some effort is being put in place, but it's effort that is being put in place in communities where they're trying to save people who are already on the edge. Mm -hmm. Where is the education taking place? Where are the funds roll being rolled out? for that to take place. Even if I look at the plans the city's talking about, I don't see that. Now, maybe I'm having trouble hmm. with my vision, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not seeing that. Um, because to me, we always have to go back to the youth. Mm -hmm. um, and it, of course, I just mentioned earlier, and I think everybody knows this, we're seeing overdoses amongst kids who are using cocaine uh, and who are trying heroin. Because of, so we, we really need to focus on what is being done, what is being rolled out, how is that being integrated into what's already there? Because we know there are inpatient services, there are uh, residential treatment facilities, 
Uh, there are partnerships between public hospital uh, systems and residential treatment facilities. But how are they working together? And, and again, the last thing is, who's doing the education? Yeah. So I, I don't hear it, and I'd, I'd love to hear it and see it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Stoller, I, I know that over the summer, you and some of the other faculty members at, at, at City College have been looking into this question as well. And you came up with some conclusions about, about you know, the, the effic efficacy of various strategies. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Right. So um, uh, Dr. Uh, Teresa Castro-Lopez and um, Dr. Bob Malera and I have been um, trying to put together the data. So we started this dialogue, actually, that, that you two put together so that we could talk to the um, Chamber of Commerce and, and City College. And um, we talked to Department of Health, and we talked to a bunch of different people about it. And it seems, just as Dr. Palmer said, that there's a lot of sort of piecemeal efforts going on around the Harlem community. But there is no really central hub for, for, number one, community advocacy, and number two, sharing information so that we can work together and see who's falling through the cracks. And so we think that City College could play a, a role with uh, putting that together, and so we're starting that dialogue. Um, we also saw two other things that we've talked about. One is um, training, which we started with the mini medical school and doing the Loxone distribution um, on campus, this kind of thing. And the other thing is... Um, after talking to the Department of Health, we see that there are some research gaps that we could get involved in. Um, and particularly um, with the arrival of fentanyl, we're, we're seeing people who are non-opioid drug users kind of falling through the cracks in the system. And we need to know, you know, how to get to them, what do they need and want, you know, wh what's, what's missing in the system for them. And I think we need to talk to the, these individuals and figure out what's going on. And I think that's a role for us as, as qualitative researchers and epidemiologists. And then we can bring this back to the community and try to put our heads together about how to protect the whole community. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the necessary cultural competencies that are, that are needed? I mean, we talked earlier about the, the, the layers of suspicion and pushback that you sometimes yeah. confront. But, um, I mean, Dr. Palmer, what would you think... Uh, the kinds of cultural competencies that are necessary to be effective in this area might be? Your, the demographics of the area that you're working in have to be very well known. Mm -hmm. The issues of those demographics have to be well known, and the people that you put in the field have to be able to talk the language of the people in those areas. They have to understand the suspicion in which some government workers are held to, and what organizations in the community have a better relationship with and if you're going to partner with somebody who do you partner with the, the who who has that credibility already built in that street cred mm -hmm. already built in so those are the kinds of things you want to think about uh culturally of course uh you're dealing with a spanish spanish population in harlem in east harlem uh you're going to have to speak that language uh you're going to have to understand how they operate there uh how their gangs operate now the it's important that if you go into these communities, you you counsel, you have the police counsel you on how they're operating at a criminal level so you don't run afoul of that. Um, and it's important that you're introduced to these communities so you don't act as if you're going to create a problem for those people who, ha who, ha who are invested in things staying the status quo. Um, so in, in terms of culture, you have to understand that. The, the language, you have to understand the, uh, the structure of, of these communities. 
uh, and you have to get permission mm -hmm. uh, at certain levels to enter your uh, churches, uh, your elected officials to a certain extent, your schools, your police are, are those people who can help guide you uh, in making those approaches. And, and we, in fact, think we're ahead of the curve when it comes to doing that in Harlem through the Chamber of Commerce mm -hmm. and, and actually as a par in a partnership with City College. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I can't emphasize that more. I think the invitation to come into the community is the most important thing. We're not running in because for any other reason than we were asked to and that anything that we do or that we suggest is through the Chamber of Commerce and through the community members to make sure that we are keeping sort of aware of the sensitivities of the culture there. And also that we think about um, sort of from the other side that people generally approach the idea of substance abuse thinking about stigma and sort of the criminal justice problem instead of this is a health problem. This is a health problem that we as public health people have to address in that way. Mm -hmm. Dr. Greller, same same dynamic in St. Barnabas in the South Bronx? Abs absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And as, as part of that community, we have efforts on going to try and reach out to the community as well as at our point of capture, which in the uh, where I work in the emergency department, it is a, an opportunity for not only for treatment but also education and, and trying to, um, you know, at the moment of crisis or at the moment of greatest need to raise some of these issues and to try and 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 help people understand what's going on. Yeah, I mean, there are moments of crises in communities when you really need a strong understanding collaboration between all the prominent institutions, churches, educational institutions, police department, chambers of commerce, the whole people. And I, and I think we're, we're looking at exactly that kind of a situation, um, not just in Harlem and, and upper Manhattan, but, but really nationwide. We're getting to the end of the show, and I know that all of you are advocates, and I, I, I want to make sure that in our conversation there isn't a thing that you desperately wanted to get on the agenda and that I've somehow uh, uh, skipped over. So Dr. Palmer, let me start with you. Anything that we've missed that you think we need to think and talk about? Well, I want to go back to how this problem is attacked. Uh, the city is setting a goal of reduction of overdose deaths of th by 35%, and mm -hmm. they're using, I guess, 2016 numbers. Mm -hmm. um, as that number grows, uh, that 35% will grow. What happens to the other group of people that are out there? 35% is not 100%. Mm -hmm. Are we ignoring those people? What, what are we actually saying to the people who need help not to expect it? We're yeah. only going to help 35% of you? Yeah. That, what, what is that? Yeah. And, you know, I guess the other question is, is that 65% evenly distributed everywhere? Or, or are there inequities in, in who gets attention, mm -hmm. who doesn't get attention? Right. Dr. Stoller? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to um, begin to explore our potential harm reduction approaches um, in a little more detailed way and see whether they would help in our local community or in the national community. Things like we have needle exchanges, but what about safe injection sites? Would they work and should we really think about that? What about um, fentanyl testing kits so that people can test their drugs and see what's in there? What are the problems? What are the benefits? How could we do things like that? I think we're going to have to be very creative about our approaches and be a little more open-minded. Dr. Grelock? I, I think it, sort of communication and, and discussion amongst all of the, the players and parties. There is research going on in other jurisdictions, in other countries, in Canada, there in Vancouver, they have uh, safe heroin injection sites where you can go and get 
heroin and it's reduced not only the number of deaths because they're getting drug that's not contaminated, but it's reduced crime. Basically, you're putting drug dealers out of business because people don't need to um, engage in, in the acquisition of that. And I think my, my biggest thing is that right now we're in an opioid crisis and we're in a crisis of trying to prevent death. Um, but the opioid crisis will be replaced by something else. And I think that what we have to start thinking about is how to think about addiction as a disease and how to fundamentally educate people from the earliest stages of education about addiction and about harm reduction and about living a safe and healthy life. Yeah. Well, listen, this has been a terrific conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply grateful to all three of you. Uh, opioid addiction is a, is a tremendously important uh, issue in Harlem, and that means it's a tremendously important issue for us at City College. So I'd like to thank you out there for listening to From City to the World. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Howard Greller, Dr. Nancy Stoller, and Dr. John Palmer. If you missed any part of this show, so go to ccny.cuny.edu and search for From City to the World. This show is produced by Angela Harden and yours truly, Vince Boudreau. Um, I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, president of City College of New York. Thank you for listening.